Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Every time you say that statement, I feel like it becomes more and more true. This is truly the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to, and I find that to be so impressive. Yeah, I think we've really hit our stride with how to create content that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans do actually listen to. I think it was really funny that both Antiprosynthesis and Ansel Adams retweeted the same POV crypto episode. It's probably the only tweet that they've ever both retweeted. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, Ansel Linder, uh, big fan of the podcast, and and Anti, also a big fan of the podcast. Both could not disagree more about <laughs> this space in general, but they agree on POV crypto, which yeah. I think is pretty awesome. This show in particular, uh, this episode with Anthony Lusardi, the former head of the ETC cooperative, really fits in between that line of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Anthony was a part of the Ethereum community after the DAO fork was a part of the ETC community and is now a, uh, a steadfast Bitcoiner. And I thought that this was especially interesting because Anthony was able to really you know, explain what he sees happening and what, um, you know, from a technical and uh, community aspect, you know, differs between the Bitcoin community, the Bitcoin space and the Ethereum community and, and the technology being built on Ethereum. Yeah, Anthony is one of those guys where uh, I think you could pick Anthony out as a Bitcoiner from kind of just what he, his attitude was even before the DAO hack. Uh, and like, so he was interested in, in Ethereum up until the point of the DAO hack. Uh, and you can just kind of see where his values uh, come and it, his interpretation of what happened. It, it, you see his values kind of come to the surface there. And, and so you get to see like, what about, the, what about the world that Anthony values, why that turned him off of uh, the current Ethereum chain as we know it today and makes him more of a, more of a Bitcoiner. Uh, and then we also get a really cool kind of walkthrough. Christian and I uh, aren't as technical. And so when Anthony comes on and talks to us to about, about nodes and why, what the big deal is with about Ethereum nodes, that was my big takeaway from this episode. Um, so Anthony, really smart guy, um, really well-rounded, really appreciated him coming on and giving, his, uh, giving us his perspective on the pod. Yeah, absolutely. But before we get into the podcast, let's talk about our fantastic sponsors. First off is eToro. Again, eToro in 2020 and 2019 and 2018 has made a massive push to support Bitcoin and crypto content creators, as well as supporting this industry in general by creating fantastic fiat to crypto exchange products. Uh, they really started off as more of a European and uh, and international exchange. And in 2019, they brought over their operations to the United States. For all of our American listeners, you can get onto eToro by using b.tc backslash eToro POV. That is b.tc backslash eToro POV. There you can play around with all their fantastic trading tools, including what they have as a completely unique offering as their copy trader feature. On their copy trader, you can just Get on there and essentially copy any trader that's on the platform's uh, unique trading style. So if you want to have some active exposure to uh, a crypto trading uh, strategy, you can find some of the best traders on there. And with one click of the mouse, just follow their trading and have your assets be traded alongside them. I think that this is one of the coolest things about eToro and it makes it really flexible. There could be a trader on there that's just stacking sets. And with one click of the mouse, you are in a stacking sets um, strategy. 
so again, b.tc backslash eToro POV. Thank you, eToro, for sponsoring this show and many other fantastic content creators in the space. Funnily enough, eToro is a previous client of our next sponsor, QuantStamp. QuantStamp is the leading smart contract auditing firm in the crypto space. Their resume of past clients is probably the most impressive resume of clients there is in crypto. Uh, MakerDAO, Chainlink, eToro, a bunch of these industry gargantuans, as well as a bunch of new clients as well. Uh, Sablier, the the recently launched streaming money platform, Pool Together, one of my personal favorite dApps. Uh, so QuantStamp has their fingers everywhere in DeFi, making sure that the DeFi contracts are built right the first time. So for every day that DeFi continues to keep on chugging along without any significant hack, you guys can all thank QuantStamp for keeping, uh, keeping DeFi secure. If you guys want to find out more about QuantStamp and what they can do for you and your future awesome dApp on Ethereum, go to www.expertaudits.com to see their suite of services and get in contact with someone from the QuantStamp team. QuantStamp, really honored to have you as a sponsor of the podcast. Thank you. And speaking of smart contracts, I have frequently said that Unchained Capital is my favorite smart contract company. Unchained Capital is our newest sponsor. Um, For those of you who are unfamiliar with Unchained Capital, it is a US-based Bitcoin institution, and they are really focused on making multi-sig as easy as possible. I really love Unchained Capital as a way to uh, set up really easy Bitcoin multi-sig Um, and also layer on a lot of banking services. Are you used to being able to check into your bank? Are you used to um, having fraud protection? Do you want someone to make sure that if something strange happens to your account, that there's no countersigning happening with your multi-sig contract and actually give you a call or, or video chat you in? Well, Unchained Capital provides a lot of those services. For me, I like to diversify how I hold my Bitcoin. So for some of my KYC Bitcoins, I like to store them in Unchained Capital because they have that great interface, because they have uh, that really easy way to set up your your multi-sig and to have those banking services attached to it. It is a three of two or two of three multi-sig. So you hold on to two keys. They hold on to one. You can set it up so every time you want to make a transaction, they countersign. And, you know, like I said, give you a call, check in, make sure that you are the one who is actually authorizing that payment. But if for whatever reason something goes wrong, you can have that second key in a different place in a redundant location and you can get the funds out yourself. Uh, So again, Unchained Capital, thank you so much for supporting Bitcoin. Thank you so much for supporting POV Crypto. Without further ado, let's just get right into the show. Uh, This was especially good one. Anthony Lusardi. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of POV Crypto and the very first live stream. Anthony Lasardi, welcome to the podcast. How's it going, man? Hey, Christian. It's going good. Thanks for having me. So, Anthony, uh, I think you kind of have a, a deep history in the cryptocurrency space, touching Bitcoin, touching Ethereum, <laughs> touching Ethereum Classic. Why don't you kind of give us uh, the, your brief history? Yeah, sure. So actually, what I would normally tell people my history, I had always started at like 2015. And then I recently learned looking through my old emails. uh, I've actually been in crypto longer than I remembered, which was like 2013. But I wasn't really doing anything important or or noteworthy there. It was just like in 2014, I was buying Dogecoin and Maxcoin and thinking like, 
oh, they're going to go to the moon and going to make some money. And Max Kaiser had a shit coin, man. Yeah. Uh, Never Max forget. Kaiser sucks. And I hate Max Kaiser. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was good, though, because that was a really like right now when you see people get get scammed on on cryptocurrencies, you see that they actually tend to lose quite a lot of money. Whereas back in 2014, me getting scammed on Max coin was literally me losing 30 to 50 bucks to Max Kaiser. Uh, which is way better than people now, where you see they lose thousands to people, if not if not more. So, sorry, uh, who's Max Kaiser? I don't think I've ever heard of this name before. Max Kaiser is a crazy person on like what's he on NBC or CNBC or something? Uh, Where's have, RT? Oh, but he used to have didn't he used to have a show on one of the more major new networks? I don't know if you've ever seen like Mad Money. He's like that type of personality, um, but. He just had his own cryptocurrency, basically said uh, this was all like in the span of like nine or 12 months. He basically like MaxCoin launched and MaxCoin was going to do better because he knew the economy and me as somebody who didn't understand anything about the economy and Satoshi didn't know about economy. So like it was clearly MaxCoin was going to do better than Bitcoin was basically the selling point. And then within inside of a year, definitely less than a year, uh, it had gone from he was supporting it to. MaxCoin dropped all its developers to further decentralize the cryptocurrency, um, which then led to its eventual downfall. And there was one one brave soul who I think ran MaxCoin up until like 2016, 2017 or something. Uh, but yeah, it's it's no more. At least the best I could tell, it's no more. Yeah, guy, guy sounds annoying. Not that I'm going to stop anyone from generating their own token because that's what we did on POV, but at least we generated 69 of them. So everyone knows it's a joke. <laughs> so it's pretty scary. David, you should look up Max Kaiser, but um, he is still very prominent in the Bitcoin space. Yeah, I don't understand that at all. Like he's literally just a scammer sitting on on panels with them. And meanwhile, they'll there's people who will attack all other scammers, but like certain people just get a pass and Max is one of them. It's very weird. Well, I think that at least he's saying the right things now. I don't know exactly if he'll always say the the right things, but it'll be interesting to keep track of it. Yeah. I mean, all I really want is just an apology and ideally my 30 bucks back, but I'll take just the apology. (laughs) How much if you price that in sats? I don't I don't know. I don't want to think about it. Uh but that would be like a fifty X from that point. So whatever thirty bucks of Bitcoin was then would be roughly fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah. yeah, probably. We're probably talking about fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> Damn dude. Max Kaiser, get this man his money. <laughs> I'll take it in Bitcoin. Uh yeah. But yeah, as we were going, you got in twenty thirteen got into shit coins. Yeah, in 2013 through 2014, got into shit coins, didn't make anything. Um, then in 2015 is when I first really... Oh, Christian's leaving now because I'm starting to talk about Ethereum, so I could I could tell. That... <laughs> no, so uh, in 2015, I started getting into Ethereum, and I was uh, basically just talking on the Reddit a lot. I really thought it was really cool that you could have uh, smart contracts on top of these financial things and kind of do much more crazy smart contracts than you could on Bitcoin. Uh, and that's really what attracted me to it. And um, at the time I was running my own consultancy. And so I would have some free time in between. And that's kind of when after the 
the Dow hack happened, uh, I started supporting ETC. I actually was probably one of the first people running an ETC node. I looked recently and the server that I had spun up to start my ETC node was about nine days after the, uh, the Dow fork and, uh, yeah, that's just how I ended up supporting ETC for a while. There was, you know, there were some developers and there were some other people. And then there was really nobody, not too many people helping out with like managing the community. I mean, we had Bidnavosti and a few other people who have come and gone since then uh, who really helped start it. And, you know, they really did quite a lot. But that's kind of where I ended up taking uh most of the role, especially after somebody particularly upset Bidnavosti and he left permanently. Um, yeah, that was basically how I got into ETC and just kind of fell into it. At the time, I didn't um, really understand that there were two Ethereums. I didn't even get that there would be a, a good amount of people who would go for the other approach. Um, and... Yeah, so it was it was really like a shock at the time to see like that all unravel so fast and hard. Um, and yeah, I think I feel like I've always kind of been much more ideologically Bitcoin. I just didn't understand it at the time. I didn't understand the particular limitations of having smart contracts at the time or the potential risks with them. And then I also felt that ETC was always going to be a good vehicle for actually exporting kind of ideology. I think even now there's quite a lot of people on Ethereum who would never support another DAO type fork. And uh, I think in general, that's good. But yeah, that's kind of my whole story of how I got into all this. So how would you describe your work with Ethereum Classic today? Like what, how would you, what role or niche do you fill in the world of Ethereum Classic? Uh, I don't really do anything on ETC anymore. I feel like there's enough people in enough community that um, everybody who's a founding member should have ideally, like anybody who's from the beginning should have kind of left so that this way everything can stay, stay decentralized. I have pretty much no control over the ecosystem now, which is good. So just like a community member or even less than that? Yeah, just like a community member, but I don't even participate in any of their you know dev dev calls or anything anymore. So... Yeah, I just don't have much involvement in ETC now. What about your role in the broader crypto world? Like, how do you see that? Uh, And what what are you doing? Oh, uh, so I was at the ETC cooperative up until April of this end of March this year. And then I left to do my own thing. I started trying to do kind of OAuth with smart contracts, but, you know, geared towards doing it on a private chain. That was really interesting. And then I ended up uh, teaming up with somebody else and we were going to do, we were going to incorporate that into kind of uh, corporate record management because it's nice to have that type of ledger of changes to your corporate records. But um, we weren't able to get traction at the time. There were probably some, some scope creep issues that we probably could have avoided. And there was probably... I don't think I'm the perfect person to really pitch VCs. Uh, and that's something that I, that I learned. And so ultimately, right, like right now, my involvement is mostly, you know, I'm just job hunting and uh, I don't have any particular hard involvement in any cryptocurrency other than I'm a fairly staunch Bitcoin maximalist. <laughs> it sounds like you learned a lot of lessons kind of throughout your journey in crypto, mm-hmm. like, 
what would if you could like hone in on like the one or two most important lessons what do you think that would be uh the first lesson is really like if somebody has more experience than you um you should probably give them more weight than what you think about it and then the other thing is that cryptocurrency is far more of a political thing than it is a technology thing and that if you come into cryptocurrency like i did with a very tech perspective to it then you might immediately think that bitcoin's limitations or bitcoin's uh really core focus is very limiting whereas actually it's kind of the opposite where the uh since it's not so technical uh you don't it really like it's hard to explain but like when you look at these things from a technical perspective it's really you're starting off with the wrong perspective and that might lead you down the wrong road uh long term and may end up with you learn quite a lot of lessons about the fact that these systems aren't like centralized systems where you're constantly working on scaling them and constantly working on adding new features uh these are actually systems where you're constantly working on making them more and more reliable and that's a completely different uh state of mind to be in about them than than a typical tech stack basically I guess this I think this is a good transition point to like let's let's talk a little bit about the current state of Ethereum and I guess where you tend to disagree with you know the developers there and the community there. Uh yeah, I guess it's well documented. Um in general I think that Ethereum's playing just too fast and too loose on on a lot of things. I think proof of stake in particular is just uh it's a really complicated and hard thing to try and solve. Um, I, that's not to say that it's uh, wrong to try and solve it. I think that it's just somewhat wrong to kind of pitch it as like, oh, we have phase zero coming and then it's going to be phase one. And by phase two, you'll be able to do something. And there's so many risks with like migrating a whole running cryptocurrency network that's even riskier than migrating like your backend for a centralized service like so much to substantially go wrong uh so much uh just friction in actually getting it off the ground and then you know proof of stake just doesn't give you the same types of guarantees as proof of work so it's just those types of things i feel like are and i know david probably would take issue with that last statement but those are the types of things that i think that really Proof of work's the only thing that's going to give you that whole, you don't need to trust any intermediaries in order to arrive at the current chain state. You only need one honest node to arrive at the current chain state. And you don't need your node to be online all the time in order to know the current state. Whereas in proof of stake, you have to sacrifice some of that. Um, And yeah, that's mostly where I disagree. And just in general, though, I feel like uh, Ethereum does things fairly risky like you see even now with MakerDAO where uh, DAI was just starting to work and reached to their credit $100 million in DAI uh, and it seems like that system was slowly becoming battle hardened and then all of a sudden you have multi-collateral DAI. Regular DAI doesn't exist anymore. Regular DAI is now called Psy and we're going to then get rid of it. Um, That's the type of thing that I think uh, it's just kind of a mentality thing and when people move too fast and too hard with that type with those types of uh things i think it's going to end up biting you um especially when you end up you know right now it's backed by some it's new die is backed by eth and a little bit of bat but then uh 
each and every one of these assets you add on you're it's like adding on like like junk loans you know that led up to the 2008 crisis where you just end up with these worse and worse quality things backing this stable dollar when some of those things start unraveling you might end up seeing lots of those things unravel uh but yeah that's kind of where i i see you know some of my major disagreements with ethereum is it's everything's too fast and too loose and yeah I totally want to touch on all of that, but I'd actually like to, to take this uh, chronologically. So it sounds like you got into Ethereum and then you got turned off of Ethereum at the, at the Dow fork. So let's go back to, and if that's, if, are there, were there any indications or any things that you had problems with before the Dow fork? Uh, no, not before the Dow fork. The Dow then fork I was the first thing. I was still rather evergreen. I was still pretty new. I was really still excited in, in the tech and where it was going. I think even at that time, I was very much excited to be moving to proof of stake so yeah okay so okay so the DAF work was the first big thing that kind of turned you off to ethereum uh yeah and so let's go through that. So that it was solely that yeah okay but and then like the things like maker dow and the charting and proof of stake are just like things that are piling on to your worries or criticisms uh yeah those happened after but at the okay. time it was solely the dow was the only thing that made me like i was quite upset at the time <laughs> Okay, so let's go through that. Like, why why did that really upset you? Uh, it was just, you know, we had these pre-agreed rules that we were going to play by and we were going to play the game. So the fact that those were just violated, uh, it's something that just seems, it's completely, like, antithetical to the bit of cypherpunk values that I picked up at the time, which was essentially that you're trying to have this kind of non-governance or this ungovernance where your governance structure is literally, we started playing this game at the start. Mm-hmm. These are the rules of the game and we're going to keep the rules of the game like this. Uh, if you like, if you want to play by these rules, you can keep doing it. And if you don't want to play by these rules, uh, then you don't have to. And that one in particular was uh, like, for me, there's some of those golden rules, which is, you know, like don't change the monetary supply, uh, don't, um, you know, and I know ETC changed the monetary supply and we could always talk about that. <laughs> uh, you know, don't, uh, don't, when it comes to private keys, private keys are the only thing that should allow you to move funds or the EVM on top of that is the mm-hmm. only thing that should allow you to move funds. And that was just a major, major issue for me. It's so, also like without due process. One of the things that I really felt Ethereum had the opportunity to do at that time and kind of upset me was the fact that i do believe the dow hacker is a criminal i believe the dow hacker should have been caught and is still a very bad guy and i wouldn't i don't think i'd actually like the dow hacker if i ever met them in person maybe i have um and for that type of person though i would have loved to see it go through some sort of regular legal system outside of ethereum and really just add more uh legitimacy to the to this entire space and that like if you have a real world problem outside of the system you go and solve it outside of the system and then the system continues working as it as it should and then uh it's resolved elsewhere yeah so i mean we all wish the dow hack hadn't happened but um (laughs) one of the things that i'm worried about is like so yeah why what what else would have happened Okay, I think it exposed Ethereum, so I'm I'm happy it happened. So yeah, that's because you want Ethereum to crash and burn for your bags, um, <laughs> and so, 
So the the point I want to, I always hope that people kind of consider in their heads is like, so a, a lot of the early stakeholders in Ethereum had their funds in the DAO hack. So like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if Vitalik did. I don't think he did. But like other people, like a, a lot of the developers did, a lot of like the, the, the people that were responsible for bootstrapping Ethereum, all, yeah. all the big stakeholders. And so uh, when it comes to aligning incentives to actually like deliver Ethereum, as in the original version of the Ethereum that was in the white paper with like proof of stake and scale and everything, well, like you, you take away their funds and you stripped out their incentives. So I think it's totally reasonable to assume that like if we hadn't uh, rolled back the DAO, and we just left it to the where it was like uh, the incentive to build on ethereum or build out ethereum from all these important stakeholders just would have been gone and we might not even have the the version of ethereum that we have today like we might have just not incentivized anyone enough to actually bootstrap the whole network and they might have just gone off and be like okay like we're just going to start from scratch from the beginning which i mean cool we don't have a hard fork but then also now we just have two chains that two separate chains that never forked, but you have the same problem where you have like a divergent community and misaligned incentives and, and, and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm cautious in saying like, well, if we had never rolled back the DAO, like, well, we, we might have not actually made the progress that we have made. Yeah. I mean, that's entirely possible, but yeah, the, I think that's a different thing though, is that uh, as far as the, the more cypherpunk values, to that goes well if it's if the system's poorly designed and going to fail then let it fail like people always say you know what if bitcoin's 21 million cap doesn't work and you they don't reach a fee market okay well then let bitcoin crash and fail take it out back and shoot it and then after go and make something else with the lessons that you learned and start a new game from from block zero uh to me like that's that's how these systems should work is that uh their their biggest goal the the most important thing about them is that type of ungovernance where there's nobody who can influence the rules of the network and that's the type of thing that to me uh should generally just be avoided um i mean i guess there probably are situations where if you could get literally everybody to sign off on a hard fork and say it's Mm -hmm. fine it's fine but i think uh in general it's just it's not something that's really good for these networks. And the more they do it, the, the worse off they, they're going to be in the long run. So the other thing that, that I always bring up with the DAO fork is like the, it's part in, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Eric Weinstein's recent podcast with uh, Vitalik Buter, and they talked about this. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, um, uh, he, he gave the example of like, there's like a, a, a robot with a human's face on it. And like the big plot twist of the movie is like the, you pull the face off of the human and there's a robot under there. Well, mm-hmm. in the Dow fork, this is actually the reverse where like, it's supposed, these things are supposed to be like machines. These are supposed to be computers. Uh, but the Dow fork was like the, the computer ripped his face off and there was a human hiding behind it. Yeah. Um, but I think that's what what people say, what, what people are doing when they come and criticize the DAO fork is they say like, okay, like these are supposed to be computer run things, like humans are supposed to have no involvement. Uh, but it's really a question of like, what, to what percentage of these things are social, are these social contract systems? And so, um, and, and this is like Hazu's big argument with his like Bitcoin is a social construct mm-hmm. that he gets a lot of pushback because people think like, no, it's just, it's completely co-driven. There's no social contract at all. And, and to me, it's a, it's a spectrum. Like, and I think that the Ethereum social contract is much more human uh, dependent than Bitcoin. 
and when Bitcoiners criticize um, Ethereum, it's because they are criticizing Ethereum using their own frame of reference, saying that like this should be much less social contract based, mm-hmm. and uh, and Ethereum should be also less social contracts construct based. But for when it comes to Ethereum in its current phase of development, where we like hard fork every six months to add in updates that we researched, and like the whole plan is to hard fork into a whole new chain with proof of stake and sharding, part of that requires social construct dependence, like a much more reliance on being a human behind the chain with the importance of actually getting to the point where there is a, a it, it is a robot. And when you pull the mask off the robot, there's still a robot underneath. Like that is the goal. But for now, we want that human, uh, human like parenting, like uh, uh, Kenny Rowe always uh, uh, call these things like children. Like Bitcoin is like a, a late teen and he could probably survive on his own, but Ethereum is kind of like a child. So it needs coddling. Like, I think that's what where we are right now. And so like using uh using a, a frame of reference that treats ethereum as like a fully grown capable adult when it's actually a child isn't, isn't helpful mm-hmm. uh yeah i mean i i'd actually agree with most everything he said there uh i agree too that these are all social contracts uh it's just i think we disagree on like what the important social contract is uh and yeah, Ethereum naturally has a different social contract. You even see it in ETC. ETC has to hard fork too because uh, the Ethereum system needs more development in general. Like there's even not appropriate opcode sometimes. And, you know, you learn things about gas pricing and that type of thing. Uh, but yeah, in general, I don't, I don't disagree that they have different goals. I just think really that for when it comes to systems in general, Systems only trend towards centralization uh, for the most part. They don't really, it's really hard to start off with a somewhat more centralized system and decentralize it than it is to start off with a maximally decentralized system and preserve it or get more decentralization out of it. I think that that's like the, one of my bigger concerns about Ethereum is that in general, I, I feel like over time, it's more likely, I'm not saying it's 100%, but I'm saying it's much more likely that it'll end up centralized uh, than decentralized if you have this very active governance where you can you know, swap out consensus mechanisms. Um, I, I would love to be proven wrong and end up in a situation where that's not the case, but that's kind of where I see things trending. And yeah, you even see that expressed uh, in smart contracts like MakerDAO decided how DAI is going to be backed and quite a lot of people disagreed with it and it doesn't matter really. Yeah. Well, I mean, people can disagree with it, but it's up to the token holders. And so they're the, they're the real people with the skin in the game that get to decide whether or not they agree with it. So I I can't, I don't think you can make the argument that like it wasn't something of consensus. Oh, I mean, uh as far as yeah maker token holders but make it maker token holders uh i think about or at least die token holders there's about 34 or 35 addresses that make up a good 50 percent of it Mm -hmm. um so yeah i agree that 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 small group is the ones that are going to be able and i don't know what the distribution of maker tokens is i'm just assuming it's about the same but i'm it's just that's the group that makes up the rules and if they can all achieve consensus then yeah but i'm sure that there's a lot of people who are kind of just acquiescing along and that's the problem too is that you never get that 
or very rarely get that true consensus. Um, and that's like the type of thing that I prefer these systems, you know, avoid in general. Yeah, nothing's ever perfect. Um, to, to bring it back to the DAO, the, the last point I always like to bring up is like, no one except for the hacker was actually harmed in the DAO. So like the chain wasn't actually rolled backwards. Like we didn't pick a block pre-DAO that we chose and then ran forward. There was this lucky little like coincidence where like the funds that the DAO hacker hacked were in this pool that he was going to be able to access 30 days later. And so there was like this window uh, of time where we could make an irregular state transition and just open up a window into that into that pool of funds and allow allow all the original DAO to, uh, shareholders to pull out their funds. If that ha that wouldn't window hadn't happened, I don't think the DAO would have happened because then the funds would have been been commingled. Like there are actual real world consequences and transactions that could have been done. Uh, you know, actual uh, people could have been harmed by by this. And so I, I don't think that because we uh, the specific scenario of the DAO is allowed to uh, silo collateral. Uh, what's the word? Collateral damage. Uh, mm -hmm. That that was a unique property. And without that, I don't think anyone would have supported that. Uh, it's just because the the loss of the DAO rollback was specifically to the hacker that specific unique circumstance uh, made made it kind of a no-brainer choice. Like, hey, do we want to harm the harm, like take back our funds from the DAO hacker and the DAO hacker alone, or do we not? Like, it's a pretty easy question. Or, yeah, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, it's it sounds like an easy question, but it's a question of the underlying properties of the network itself. And yeah, I agree that um, you know, it's not a rollback or a, re a reorg really is what you would call it. It is kind of a rollback in that you rolled back certain in that it rolled back certain addresses. I know it didn't re readjust that block. Uh, actually one of the things I dislike most about that fork is that there's very carefully chosen language around it, like irregular state change. Um, an irregular state change doesn't sound the same as took money, out, took funds out of one account and put them in another account. Um, and you could even say, you know, you could, but you could keep that consistent. You could say, okay, we had this money, the, these funds, and they were in a bunch of accounts. Dow hacker took 30% or so of it, about 3.6 million Ethereum at the time, um, put it into their account, uh, and, and took it into their account. And then the Ethereum community went and took it back into the other accounts. Like, I don't like that whole reinventing the language thing, because then you see it, it kind of, uh, is going to and already has infiltrated ideology and the way people talk about these things elsewhere. Um, and I think that that's like one thing that is somewhat harmful, just like talk about these things as they actually are uh, rather than, you know, it's in a regular state change. So something that I've noticed, especially, you know, looking at the attitude from leadership in the Ethereum foundation is this willingness to say, Hey, the game, might not be right and if the game breaks we're gonna fix it right mm -hmm. um so vitalik has been like in the past people have like asked him hey vitalik don't you know miners set the block size in ethereum he's like yeah but if they abuse it you you better believe we're gonna hard fork them out and change the rules on them like it, it's almost like the social contract that they're playing with enables or excuses the ability to to change the rules I, I just personally, I'm skeptical that that is, is actually scalable because I, one, don't think that community is scalable. 
I think that there becomes a certain threshold where there's enough stakeholders in Ethereum that aren't in the Ethereum community that is well identifiable. Um, and as soon as that becomes a substantial portion, like you're going to have a lot of freaking issues playing your game, right? Your game is going to be broken, which it is. We already know it's broken and you're not going to be able to change it. And you're not going to be able to get people to agree on how to change it. So I just think it's a ticking time bomb. Like, sure, it, you've been able to pull it off so far. But I just like if Ethereum continues to succeed, this strategy is going to fail very soon, in my opinion. Well, instead of calling it a ticking time bomb, I would say I didn't call it a race because like that's like stuff like that is what so many different uh, parts of Ethereum are, are researching and, and learning and, and figuring out how to make these things non-issues. And so um, with like, like, you know, uh, block size optimization and shard optimization and all these things that require like consensus, like you only have to figure out the the right um, window or parameters that these things need to operate inside for it to work into the long term. And, and the idea is that, again, like we get to a point where there's a robot running Ethereum and when you pull the mask off, there's still a robot there. And but like we're not there yet. And once we get there, then our race is over. And if that ticking time bomb hasn't gone off, which I don't even know what that ticking time bomb thing is, uh, then if we've well, gotten it, to that point, it's, then it's, it's literally fine. adoption. Adoption is the ticking time bomb for coordination. Like when it comes to a decentralized network, the more people that are involved, mm-hmm. that is your ticking time bomb. Right. Invo- so, involved just in general in Ethereum, just like using sure. it or being a developer coordinator person. Any sort of real stakeholder with money involved or even token issuers or whatever, like the more you invite people in, the more they're going to expect something that is, uh, that is expected. You know, I guess Mm. that the more they're going to expect the system to be a certain way. And you can say that the culture or whatever, you know, the social contract is this, but the reality is, is that social contracts don't scale. Like culture and community don't scale. Eventually, there's people that are going to be playing with your permissionist stuff that don't buy into that. Um, and I, I don't think that there's a Bitcoin community. I think there's many Bitcoin communities, but that is enabled because, you know, Bitcoin is Bitcoin. It doesn't change. It won't change. It's, it's just going to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that time bomb itself isn't really like something that's going to blow up Ethereum, but you're going to reach a point where, uh, the rules aren't allowed to change anymore because there's too many stakeholders. And if one of the more uh, central consensus rules do get changed, you're going to end up with another contentious fork. And then you're going to just end up with death by a thousand forks like you saw with uh, Bitcoin Cash and BSV and then further ones from there is that you end up in that same type of thing. Um, so that's kind of like you'll just you may just end up reaching a point where changing certain rules is just no longer allowed and you're stuck with whatever they are. Um, yeah. So I don't really think there actually can be a contentious fork or one that survives in Ethereum anymore because of some of the things. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, we got a comment from my, my good friend, Michael Wong saying, hello, facial hair. I keep on scratching it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so there, there can't be a fork in Ethereum anymore because of just all the on-chain assets that, that exist like people are going to have to choose. And so, uh, and some people think that like MakerDAO really has this power where if there are two forks, uh, MakerDAO is going to have to pick which one that they want to operate on. And that will really um, 
threaten the livelihood of the other one. But not just MakerDAO has this power. Like there's there's uh, stable coins that are fiat backed stable coins like USDC that they can't answer to both tokens on both chains. And so like people are just going to converge on one chain because that's going to be the chain where everyone agrees to honor the assets. Like my company Realty has this problem too. Uh, Like there we have uh, tokens that represent property and when the chain forks, like there aren't two properties, like we're gonna have to pick one. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right there in that uh, it's definitely not going to be like, and even split, but you're probably going to end up in a situation where either uh, there's still some, not everybody's going to go the same way because it'll be in their interest to not for whatever reason. Uh, if they lose USDC or die or something, they can, they'll end up uh, just dealing with it. So I think that there's still definitely, definitely chances for contentious hard forks uh, when it comes to rule changes. And I think that the risk actually gets higher and not lower uh the more parties you have involved and when it comes to think more centrally issued assets like usdc really that that's more of an engineering thing as far as uscc or the rest of them are concerned they can just split their token and issue it on both and each token prior to the fork is only valid on one or the other uh that's not like too hard of an issue for them to overcome in general i mean even to this day you have uh your Ethereum and ETC nodes will sync off each other for quite a while and will cross talk up until they reach uh, block 1.92 million and then they'll just stop talking to each other. So uh, there's still like some some things there that I think are just more technical things that people will develop around if they feel that they need to, uh, but that aren't the things that are going to keep it all together. I would even jump in and say that uh, the role of centralized exchanges is being something that uh, people in Ethereum don't quite talk about. Like with the DAO hard fork, Vitalik is DMing, you know, exchange operators telling them stop trading. But, you know, fast forward to today, you know, it's not just MakerDAO that has its hands on on Ethereum's balls, you know, which chain is going to win. Like these different exchanges that hold lots of Ethereum and in a staking Ethereum um, have governance rights, they're also going to um, have a lot of power in, you know, any sort of a contentious or fork situation. Like uh, there's a lot at play here and there's a lot of moving parts, especially when the culture is to fork, right? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, Proof of stake. Yeah, somebody pointed out to me recently, and I haven't really thought about it much, but I was reading a few things where there is substantial risk when you have these exchanges doing staking as a service and they own a, they have control of a significant portion of the supply. You know, suddenly you have 10 or 12 different validators who are also the, this, the majority node operators on top of that, the majority uh, economic node operators, whereas in a proof of work network that's, that's broken apart you have your miners and you have your majority uh or your your large uh economic nodes whereas in proof of stake you're gonna end up in a situation where they're both i think there's probably ways to engineer around that i think that it really comes down to the current designs like if you look at bitcoin uh and better hash where uh in independent miners are actually able to now set a lot more of the rules of the chain that they want to mine on 
whereas previously you had uh, just the mining pool determined the rules of the chain you mined on. So you could end up mining Bcash instead of Bitcoin uh, without even knowing that your hash power is pointed that way. Um, so for proof of stake, I think it's really something that for everybody designing these systems, they should at least consider that uh, they should try and make it so that each and every individual holder has some sort of better way to say that, oh, no, these types of rule changes are completely unacceptable to me. So I never want my coins to be used like that rather than li- relying on exchanges to do it because exchanges aren't going to do it. That, re- that would require the holders actually validating the chain, Anthony. Not entirely, but yeah, that you would probably, uh, yeah, for most rules, yeah, you're right. It would, it would require you validating the chain. Mm, yeah, but there's also, also staking pools, right? So, or so where people have less than 32 or don't really want to run their own validator, they can just pay a fee and that can be kind of coded in. Yeah, but then those pools are the ones that choose the whatever rules of the fork of the shard that they want to. Yeah, but, be but the pools on. the pools can have that logic coded in because this this can be an on chain infrastructure. Yeah, you but then you have to rely on the pools doing it uh, rather than the pools just kind of choosing where they want to point their their stake. Yeah, but it'll be much easier than like you going to running a node and, and making sure that you're running the node that you want to versus like if you you can just move your funds to a different pool. Like it's oh, just yeah, but one transaction free, away. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Anthony, I actually I, I think that you're in a unique perspective or unique position to kind of help both Bitcoiners and Ethereans get on the same page with what is a node in both systems. Like I've can tried. you kind of give us like like if you could compare a Bitcoin node to the equivalent on the Ethereum network, like what would those comparisons, like what would be equal? And can you try to like just level the playing field a little bit just so people like are talking about the same thing? Um, oof, it's, it's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> so I think that there's basically two things when it comes to running a node. Um, and for Ethereum itself, when it comes to... Because of the way smart contracts work, and since it's Turing complete, there is a special class of Ethereum node that's not really relevant for most people's use cases, but it is relevant for some called an archive node. But the archive node itself doesn't really, um, sorry, my cat's been sitting on my lap. Uh, the archive node itself doesn't really matter so much for this discussion. So I'm going to just pretend like archive nodes don't exist for when you're talking about full nodes, um, and this is actually a point of of differentiation that only came about uh, on the Ethereum side, really, is that when a Bitcoiner was talking about a full node, they meant a node that has the full data and a it's fully validated the rule set in that their node has actually gone through each and every block up until chain head and now decided that this is the longest chain. Um, and this is the, also they validated that this chain is following all the rules in particular uh, that I expect my Bitcoin chain to follow. And that's really where a lot of the contention comes from is that you have this, you have the full data of the node, and then you have fully validated your node to know that all that data actually follows the rule set you expected it to follow. Uh, whereas in Bitcoin, you could have also fully validated your node, but not kept all the data and ha- and run a prune node that discards all blocks after it's made sure that it's following the rules. Um, and what you end up ended up with on Ethereum, and it is improving a bit now uh, in general, but 
when you have a full node on Ethereum or what's called a full node, like if you go right now and sync Geth, uh, but you fast sync it, you may have all the data that makes up a full node, but your node itself has not validated that the rules of all that data have actually been followed. Instead, what it's done is it's downloaded a, a, a state try that uh, somebody else has pre-computed. And then from a certain block forward, it's it's gone and made sure it follows the full rules, but it hasn't val- validated all that backlog because that takes a long time. So the idea there is get the node up fast and syncing. There has been improvements now where at least um, you can a FASIC node can kind of slowly turn itself into a full node in that it can, after it's FASIC to chain tip and kind of assumed all that data prior is correct, uh, they can go and it can slowly over time go and make sure that everything's actually been followed. And I don't know what happens if it finds out that some of the rules weren't followed, but that's kind of where the the split happened. And one of the main concerns that, um, or at least one of the more legitimate concerns about Ethereum's way of syncing now is that fast sync approach only came about because the chain size got so big and so bloated, uh, not in not in actual megabytes, but in uh, computation required, that it now takes about a month to like kind of full sync that on decent hardware. Uh, and that's kind of where you end up in the situation where right now every seven to nine days of Ethereum's transaction history takes a full day of your regular uh, commodity computer or laptop or VPS to actually sync and validate that the rules were followed for those pre- preceding seven to nine days. Uh, the closer and closer that comes to uh, the the more re- the more you add on to that validation time, and I'm going way too long into this, but the more you add on to that validation time. Uh, the harder and harder it becomes to actually sync and make sure the full rules of the network are being followed. So like right now you can kind of say, yeah, it's okay. But when a new node has to come online and isn't going to know till a month later that the rules are being followed. And then next year, isn't going to know until two or three months later that the rules are being followed. That's going to be a major issue for a lot of nodes. And then you're going to end up in a, in a more centralized area where only those people that have been running full nodes for years and years are the ones who truly know whether or not all the rules of the network are being followed and nobody else does. And so what's the bottleneck there? Is the bottleneck write speed or CPU power? Uh, the bottleneck there, I think it's, it's mostly, I think write speed is the major bottleneck, but CPU power, it depends. When you're doing an archive node, it, it can get more into... Actually, no, when you're doing an archive node, it actually gets more into the write speed. But yeah, there's definitely there's there's a good amount of bottlenecks there. And there's a lot of time where the CPU isn't being used. So I think it's really just write speed, but I'm not 100% on that. Does the SSD mitigate this? Um, an SSD is the only way that you get the one month sync time. Uh, an H, a hard drive, you just can't do it at all. Except Geth now has improvements where you can keep some of your old backlog uh, on HDs, which is nice if you don't want to spend so much money on really large SSDs. But uh, the SSD mitigation gives you that one month now and probably two to three months next year uh, sync time. Uh, And so I'm not... I'm not an expert in ETH2, but the whole idea is that when we move over to Ethereum 2.0, we kind of start fresh with how much data there is. And then we also 
really lower a lot of requirements from uh, what is required on the hardware side of things. Um, and so like to my knowledge, like sure, we have this kind of bloated chain that is getting longer and larger, longer and harder and harder to sync. But like that kind of just starts from zero again once we're on ETH2. Yeah, somewhat starts from zero. I think you may need to fully validate your Ethereum node in order to know that the whatever the state transitions are to ETH2 are correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but with sharding, it becomes more you're just it's almost like uh, if you took an Ethereum node and chose if you have like 64 shards like they're planning right now, if you said, oh, my current Ethereum one nodes only going to validate every 64th block. Uh, that's kind of like the same type of thing where, um, yeah, you may know the rules that your shard are on are being followed or a few shards, but um, you might not know if they all are. Yeah. Yeah. So you still end up with that. You can end up in those same types of issues and these networks just don't scale well while preserving Mm -hmm. the properties we want them to have. I would like Trent, who I know is in the the live stream chat to chat. I'd really like Trent to be here because he's the exact guy who I would lean on to answer some of these questions. <laughs> Trent, come on the show, man. Yeah. Rebuttal. Trent. Yeah. He's a nice guy. We actually True. got we should throw him a Zoom link right now. Actually. <laughs> yeah, Trent. Do you, you have the power. You have the power. I don't want to take we 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 gotta wrap it up soon-ish, but I guess would love to get your perspective, Anthony, on what is happening on DeFi right now, seeing as though at one point you were interested in, you know, the Ethereum vision. Is DeFi kind of f- fulfilling that original Ethereum vision? And it, are there aspects of it that you find interesting? I think DeFi is really cool. Uh, I think DeFi is also completely mislabeled in that it's not generally decentralized. Uh, each and every one of those things have some sort of centralized component to it uh i think there's one or two cases that i'm forgetting that kind of don't but from most everything it's really just not decentralized and that's like really my main issue with DeFi. isn't that like people are running these crazy experiments uh it's more that they're it's being called something that it's not and then um it's not also not so much the running of the experiment it's how it's communicated it's uh, treated as if it's very, very safe or relatively safe when it's actually kind of very risky. Like these are brand new financial instruments that nobody's ever done before. And we at least know from history that when you start uh, backing stuff with the real life version of a shit coin, it eventually ends up with uh, stuff blows up. Things start unwinding. Uh, things start not being valuable. Uh, can If you could imagine like if you had multi-collateral die and then somehow BitConnect ended up in that system uh, and then BitConnect one day goes to zero, like that's, that's the type of thing that uh, concerns me about DeFi. I think it's really cool that people are doing things where they don't need permission. I think uh, if you're going to actually do that, you need to stop doing this under your name in a country that's the U S or friendly with the U S um, I think if the, these things are really to survive, they both need to be clear about what they are, the risks that they have, and the team needs to go more anon and be capable of actually doing these somewhat extra legal things right now that 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 they aim to do. But you know that also doesn't you one of the trade offs there is you don't you can't make as much money on it. 
the big criticism and the one that you started with is that, and I also hear from Bitcoiners is that like, we're not ac- accurately advertising the risks involved with DeFi and all these things. And like, from the moment I stepped into crypto, it was all like risks, risk, 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 risk. Like this mm. could all go to zero. Like, you know, don't invest more than you can lose. And so like, we've had this culture, not specifically to DeFi, but we've had this culture of being like, yo, you are stepping into a really risky industry. And I think like the reason why like DeFi doesn't, like make this a huge priority is because like we're fucking tired of it like yes we all know there's risks like we don't and like the i was thinking about this earlier today like i feel like bitcoiners want uh DeFi protocols to like make sure that like have a, a comparable amount of like known consent to like the way that social justice warriors want like sex to be done when it when it comes to this this whole me too movement where it's like please sign on the dotted line that you consent to this like at that point it just becomes like prohibitive to be actually useful and so like if you're if you know how to put your eth inside of a vault and then mint die like you also know that there are risks and so like just having this having this like restriction saying like you know you are stepping into a there there's smart contracts risk there's regulation risk there's like kyc risk like blah 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 it's just like well it's just like then then like it's just like hamstringing the whole entire project it's definitely clear that there's a lot of risk in crypto to most people who have been in it for a while i think that though in general when i hear like people talk about die they go well it's minimum or on average uh 350% over collateralized and if it goes at anything over under 150 there's an immediately immediate kill switch and it's like yes but when people kind of phrase it like that they're really just saying like you have nothing to worry about it's it's so incredibly well backed that nothing ever that that bad scenario it just isn't going to happen um, that's at least the comp- the types of communication I see around it where uh, really like it should be. Um, so we have this 300% backing on it and that's good, but there's these other examples in history where that type of backing didn't mean anything and actually can exacerbate the problem. Um, yeah. So in general, I just think that the risks aren't really well communicated. And when it's called default, just call it OpFi. I mean, uh, it doesn't sound as good. But uh, I hate Opfi. <laughs> As a name, it's it not seems like you're torn on it. It's, it's yeah, just... well, no, open finance in, in is not Opfi. Open finance is open finance. Anyways, yeah. So I actually really agree with Anthony though uh, on the what second point he made, which is uh, <laughs> which is about uh, the going anon. So like, I don't think that I think the 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 end is censorship resistance. Like that's why we do most of the things we do is to be censorship resistant and permissionless, right? There's many ways of doing that, and it's not necessarily decentralization. What I find is very concerning with the DeFi open finance space is that one, they're not decentralized to be censorship resistant. Two, they're not anonymous and they're not actively trying to evade uh, powerful and restricting uh, countries and, and governments. You know, MakerDAO is very heavily uh, centralized in the United States, which we know very much likes KYC and AML laws. I just don't see how MakerDAO can stay non-KYC in that kind of arrangement for very long. It's like you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be in the U.S. and you can't be centralized but also trying to sell a 
permissionless censorship resistant product. It's just not going to happen. Anthony, do you yeah. want to go before I go? No, you can go. I so agree. I think I think part of of what we've gotten our, how we worked ourselves into a corner is we just picked the wrong words. Like decentralized finance, like maybe wasn't the right word. It was just another way to bastardize the word decentralized and then hook it into whatever we were doing at the time. And so, and as you build applications, financial applications on Ethereum, and they go higher and higher up in the stack, in my opinion, you need less and less like decentralization. Like I think there's a, a conversation that is starting. That. There's, yeah. there's a conversation starting on Ethereum talking about like, okay, are these protocols or are these products? Uh, and so like, Dharma started as a protocol, right? Uh, and that, and now it's a product. Like it's, it was a peer-to-peer lending protocol, and now they've pivoted and, and turned themselves into a, a uh, 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 non-variable interest rate product. And so that's kind of actually, like we, we call MakerDAO as like the decentral bank of Ethereum or the reserve bank or something, but it's really a private bank. It's a private bank with its own risk parameters with its product that is DAI. And so I, I'm actually starting to think that like every every application on Ethereum is going to have some amount of centralization and some sort of like centralized product that they're going to offer. And then, then maybe some of their product is also like part of the MakerDAO product is you get to take part in governance. And so we can decentralize the centralization a little bit by spreading out MKR. Um, and uh, to Christian's point about like uh, United States, like forcing KYC on all these things, like, well, I, I don't think it's likely that the United States is going to come in and say like, okay, like if you, in order to open up a CDP, you must KYC. And if they do, well, then that incentivizes a, a people to just hard fork the whole entire system and have whatever, to have whatever MakerDAO has and on a different protocol inside of Ethereum that doesn't do KYC. And so I bet that one takes off. If, if there is KYC in the MakerDAO that we know today, then the non-KYC MakerDAO, I bet, would take off really, really well. And that's just what an anti-fragile system would do. Yeah, I mean, Depend- potentially. A lot of people don't have issues with KYC, though. So that's the other thing. You might just end up in a situation where it very much rep- resembles currently existing systems. And like, kind of resembling cur- currently existing systems is a little bit what we want because... We get the, those, those are things that have proven to work. They're working now, but then we also get the benefit of like, it's accessible on the internet. Uh, anyone can accept, can access them from anywhere. Uh, these transactions happen much more fast. Uh, you know, it takes a penny to send a billion dollars, like all these extra benefits, like realty, my company existing system, but we are on Ethereum and, and we can do all these cool things. Like, some of these some of these things we actually do want to model after the old world because of the benefits that being on a a internet based protocol gives i mean yeah but in that case just make it a bit more centralized or you know you don't need to do it on a blockchain for some of those things like i always say you know that there's all these dexes out there and they're supposed to be decentralized but the one truly decent there's actually two now i forgot the other one's called but the one truly decentralized exchange uh is called bisque and it's completely p2p and it runs over tor and actually has all these properties uh so yeah in general though i would think that if you were going to do that then you should probably just create your own system anyway and not uh clog up a public blockchain with it which i think over time we're going to see more and more layer two stuff going that way I agree. I think most of these applications will have their own like layer two thing. 
Anthony, thanks for coming on the show, man. This was a lot of fun and very enlightening to get someone. I think uh, like Zach Cole, you have really sat in both both camps and, and understand both camps more than the average person. So thanks a lot on kind of enlightening us, especially on the nodes and telling your story. I thought it was a great interview. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Anthony. That was fun. Yeah. Anthony, where can people find you? Who do you want to uh, hear from? You can find me on Twitter. I'm there under PyScale, which is a portmanchu of uh, Python and Haskell. I know Python pretty well. I'm still pretty miserable at Haskell. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. How do you spell that? The, oh, P-Y-S-K-E-L-L. And uh, yeah, that's mostly where you can find me. I, you know, I've got a website called crappyphotography.com if you want to see I actually don't upload any of my good photos on the hmm. internet. I only put the shitty ones up. <laughs> it's fun. You can also find him on Sundays with his cat on the, the famous crypto uh, pets thread. Yeah. <laughs> Christian, I haven't seen you there. Apparently, uh, I don't have a cat. Oh, well, I'll, I'll have to I'll, I'll link you every Sunday. There's cats, dogs, and uh, James mm-hmm. Presswich actually has, has rats. Rat. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think my cat would like James's pets. <laughs> <laughs> James cool. has maybe convinced me that rats are cute. So <laughs> I don't think my cat is convinced. Y'all can find me at CK underscore snarks. You can find the podcast and this live stream now on Twitter at POV crypto pod. David, you can find me at trustless date, both on Twitter and on medium. Thanks everyone for hopping into our first ever live stream. It was pretty active. They had, I think we had like 20 people in there at one point. Uh, it was, it was actually a little bit distracting, like reading the comments and, and being in the podcast at the same time. So I'm happy to have to be better at that. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. I always avoid the comments to be honest. Uh, live streams are to do that. a little bit distracting for sure. <laughs> but yeah, y'all. Peace out. Will you?